Jaykuru, everyone. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Autobiography of a Yogi Line by Line. We're currently doing chapter three, and this is the third part. And this is also joined, we're joined with by Mike, Lauren, and Chris. Hi, guys. Hello. Um, I got a haircut. Podcast podcast listeners can imagine what it looks like. (laughs) Neat and tidy. The the inverse of Chris's. (laughs) Are you saying mine's not neat and tidy? (laughs) Long, that is short. Mike would be probably the complete inverse. You you did describe it as Christ-like earlier, so I'll stick to that. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Um, So last week, we said, before we get to talk about this week's episode, last week we talked about some challenges that we kind of set ourselves. So we mentioned uh, Guruji's advice of making each meditation deeper than the last. And we discussed how difficult that is for many reasons. And we joked about uh, about hacking that system as well. So I thought we'd start with our challenges. And there's also that challenge of uh, trying to get in there the second tension um, theory where we work on, you know, developing that capability of unfathomable peace um, that we want to achieve um, now and more so in our retirement should it come to that so let's talk start with the first one the deeper meditations um i will start unless someone else wants to um so hopefully did you guys take up the two challenges or not really i have to admit i did the first but i forgot about the second okay chris did you yeah i did it cool and well you're about to share your experience but um my experience is maybe limited, so let me just jump in. Yeah, first. go for it. I I liked it. I I really um, thought it was it was kind of like a nitrous boost, like a real um, boost to the depths of concentration um, in the meditation. I, I I thought it was a great use of um, uh, yeah a, a, a technique, a bit of homework for us. Um, I did find myself thinking about it though during the meditation for <laughs> a little bit and then I had to you know come come back off that and go into the meditation so I don't know if the if it balanced itself out <laughs> because of that but it, it was great it was nice to think okay you know am I improving uh, and that that's a difficult metric as we discussed to try to pin down but I thought overall it was very beneficial Cool. Chris, did you have a crack at it? Sorry, Mike, did you have a crack at it? Yeah, but um, I didn't do a whole week. I, I did like three days and I it felt nice because I um, kind of, while it was going, I felt like I was building up momentum and I did things like I did small meditations uh, during lunchtime that I usually don't do so much and I, I did energization exercises um, uh, in the evening, which is a miracle for me, <laughs> <laughs> which was great. But then I had like this one time where I came home super late and just did a short meditation and went to bed and that kind of killed the momentum a little bit. <laughs> I didn't pick it up again. Lauren. 
Yeah, much like Mike, it started out super well. I've actually had a bit of a life-altering week. Um, I started a new lesson as well, which uh, was, yeah, very expanding. So yeah, it started off really, really well. um, And each was feeling much more in depth than the last. And then I got to Wednesday and like Mike, I had a late night. I got up in the morning and it all just kind of started to... It's hard to uphold, I think. <laughs> and what I've realized is that we're really in a kind of like spiritual warfare with ourselves. Like it's a battleground in this mind. And there's so many forces that we have to like come up against and try and overcome. And it's always trying to pull you back. And you're always trying to like, you know, push yourself on. Um so yeah, it's um, it's definitely a journey, isn't it? It's, it's no easy feat trying to meditate deeper than the last. Um, so yeah, I didn't quite manage it every single day, but I tried my best, and I think that's all we can do sometimes. Can I can I just throw into the topic of conversation that the spirit, the spiritual pension that we're talking about, which uh, is is one subject. Um, I actually think I received that already in one form. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. I recruit people for a living. So I go out and find very niche, you know, skill sets for for uh, tech companies generally. Um, and I I tend to think I'm very lucky, quote unquote, for finding people and making hires for companies and things like this. And it's been a reoccurring thought like, oh, this is kind of easy in some ways and people really struggle to find people and I seem to have this kind of a, I think about it like a magnet you know I can just draw some candidates out of the ether and I thought to myself well who am I you know I'm not the deer is it you know <laughs> I've got I've got a team on my side probably trying to make my life easier so I can go focus on other things and that is just reoccurring and I can't shake it you know from my 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 conscience now and I suppose it's one of those things in my mind that I just think it's so strong, so firmly with me now that I simply am accepting the guru's help in my work or my day-to-day work to kind of make my day-to-day life easier. And I, some people would say I'm doing myself a disservice there, but in general, I would, I would give the credit to, to the gurus and to God to help me then focus my life <clears throat> in my meditations and spiritual practice. But yeah, an early pension. the early pension of intuitional awareness that's what i kind of took took from took from that chris um but back to lauren what you were saying about uh, the challenges um of of the meditation in the path um it kind of feels like you're uh, gleaning from a book such as god talks with arjun a little bit i know you reading it from he talks a lot about that the challenges and the obstacles and okay I yeah, haven't actually the, the warriors, the war. Um, I know you're you're starting it again on the um, yes. Krishna talks about it. So the early early ones, uh, it certainly talks about that a lot. Mm. Early passages, um, but let's I just mention my um, experience about the challenges. <clears throat> so I didn't uh, after the first day, um, I didn't really know how to do this. Make sure it's deeper because, as Mike said, how do you gauge if something is deeper? Um, and I thought rather than doing that, I'll just try and because <clears throat> the goal of every meditation is to go as deep as possible. So rather than doing that, I thought I'd just go for longer and do more periods of meditation and more 
practices that I wouldn't normally do in, in the week. And shockingly, surprisingly, probably unsurprisingly, Guruji lent a hand in that and arranged my week such that every day there was a new spiritual addition or a challenge. Um, so for, uh, it made it a lot help, more helpful that um, this week's uh, a special week, um, that today's Ram Navami, which is uh, celebrating uh, Ram, the Lord Ram. Um, and he, uh, so we fast today. And I, I usually do my once a week fast on Saturday. So I did that Saturday fast. And then there was another fast yesterday. Um, so there was like three fasting days. So then when you'd fast, you obviously have a lot much more time. So I had much more time for my practices during those fasting days, which uh, which really helped. Um, and then, then randomly the other day, so I was doing this, I was chugging along. And then Karishma, Mike, who you know, Chris, I don't know if you know, she's one of the young adults at London Centre. She has popped in. To my house and she, she'd been wanting to do a kirtan with me for like i don't know how long but actually for some reason it happened this week so we just like i got we both got home from work and then we were just doing a kirtan in my meditation room and had a meditation which was really nice which is uh, i never meditate straight after coming home from work so the, all these like little nuances were very very different um and then once uh one day uh was it yesterday yeah it was yesterday uh, there was some train related emergency at work um and i had to go into work before my meditation began like i got a call which is rare um and then i thought oh, no this is going to mess up my um routine but then i thought okay now i'm going to make this work so then i did um the careers that you sorry the the practices that look weird using armrests i did that in the meditation room and then on the walk to the station and waiting at the station i did like energization <laughs> And then, and then, so I, I, I broke it up into various parts of my journey where I could, and like, um, I did all my practices somehow on my journey. It was really cool. So every day there was a nuanced new way of doing it, and all these little things like helped me to realize that you can make uh, make it a part of actually every section of your life, um, which is pretty cool. So Guruji. Uh, intervened to help me in various ways this week so i thought it was a really good challenge that we did um, well done for encouraging me and uh, whoever came up with it <laughs> but yeah mike yeah i really liked the uh, the portion where you said you did the energization exercise i i imagine at the platform right I tried to I tried to style it out like you know like how people are stretching and stuff so I was like <laughs> were you yawning <laughs> but, then, but there's some there's some that you can't style out like the fencing exercises there's mm. no way yeah, the, the memory exercise like... <laughs> did you fence on the platform Priya? I did I did fence yeah <laughs> did See, fence. these are the inspiration <laughs> we all need in our lives Chris, no, I've se I've seen someone do energization exercises of sorts on a platform in Italy when I was waiting. I think at Florence in a, a, in a train station there, and I thought to myself, well, the guy was just doing it unabashedly, you know, just open. Uh, you know, some people were looking over at him, some people, you know, looked at him, looked back, didn't didn't care. Um, I just thought it was great. It was a great example, actually, uh, where you do whatever practice really you need to when, when you can. 
Um, and I thought, actually, it's a lot more normal. He, ma he made it normal just by embracing it. And he just did it unabashedly in front of everybody. So um, I, I aspire to be that man. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. And on a, on a lighter note, regarding the second, uh, the movement that we want to create about the second pension, the second challenge we had. Um, so I did try this and it was actually pretty easy to try it because at the moment there's all sorts of turmoil in Europe about pensions like France is on pretty much whole France is on strike because of pension changes age you know pensionable age changes and in my company like where they're reforming the pensions and everyone's up in arms about it so like it kept coming up and then I took the opportunity like the first time it came up there was like a group of four people around my around my desk area and they started talking about pensions and the changes. And I said, oh, but I do hope you've, so the last guy I was talking, I said, I do hope you've taken care of your second pension though. And he's like, oh yes, my second pension from my previous company. Yeah, it's going really well. And he started talking about the investments. I was like, oh no, this is not what I wanted. This is not what I, wanted. <laughs> I even mentioned like, you know, unfathomable peace and like meditativeness and, you know, developing that quality of like being calm and things like that. But he just was just going over his head because he kept thinking about his actual second pension so that was a uh, I think it's one one past the first one with a second challenge did not work for me very brave of you Greg. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it was brave <clears throat> I'm known as the yoga person so hopefully uh, it wasn't <laughs> too too weird um like someone at work um <laughs> everyone's pretty unhealthy in my office um greasy food and all that kind of stuff and i always have my salads and things as you know um and mock me for mike and lauren <laughs> um last time you did i would never anyway so like my the, 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 the office manager she was um uh, she was like, oh, you're so healthy, Priyank. And then this couple of weeks ago, so I gave her uh, an or like she went away from her desk and I gave her one of my oranges and put it on her desk. Oh. And then she she obviously knew it was straight away and she started poking fun at me. And then yes, the other day she came, she came, I came to my desk and there was a Terry's chocolate orange. <gasps> <laughs> and she's like, this is more my cup of tea. You're going to have this Terry's chocolate orange. <laughs> so yeah, in small ways, I'm trying to influence people's lifestyles mm. <laughs> orange bribes <laughs> mike yeah didn't guruji say do do small things in an extraordinary way right so mm. very very good friend and i and i i think i said this on this podcast many times but the the like month or something that i lived with priyank um was very reforming because like i remember breakfast at Priyank's house was amazing. It was like all raw fruits and sprouted lentils. And uh, man, this is like, I, I did that. Like sometimes when I think back to, um, I want to improve my nutrition or something, that's usually what I think about. Okay, just ha have only raw food until lunchtime or something. That's already <laughs> really half the battle. Yeah, my wife's uh, yeah. very much yeah. on it. Yeah, it was good fun, mm -hmm. like having you around. <laughs> so let us go swiftly on wasn't so swift 15 minutes of good dialogue but now let's talk about the autobiography of yogi this section of the book we're talking really about now the meeting of Kedarnath Babu and 
young Mukundalal Ghosh whilst Swami Pranavananda kind of stands there watching this meeting. <clears throat> so Giranath Babu comes upstairs and, you know, uh, Mukunda is saying, what, how are you here? What's happening? Everything's mysterious and asks him to relate the story as to how he got here. And Kiranath Babu then relates that story and, you know, talks about his own bafflement. Um, and then they kind of, they kind of then take both their stories to Swami Pranavananda, who kind of rebukes Mukunda almost saying, why, why are you baffled um, and explains the yogic uh, science that has occurred before his very um, surprised eyes um, and the, the science of astral radio and television of which there's a uh, quite a chunky footnote um, about some research in the 1930s which we'll also talk about. So let's start with this <coughs> this movie scene sort of narrative that uh, Kiranath Babu kind of uh, enunciates. He he kind of talks about his like his morning. He was, you know, having a peaceful bath at the Ganges and he was approached by Swami Pranavananda and um, he didn't know how he was, how he knew that Kiranath Babu was there, which was quite cool. So, and we kind of explained last episode how Swami Pranavananda may have used the technique that Guruji describes later in the book to locate um, Giranath Babu. <clears throat> and then he tells um, Giranath Babu, oh, you know, Mukund, uh, Bhagavati's son, who uh, Giranath Babu knows because of the employer, he's basically essentially work, they work for the same employer. Um, Giranath Babu's son is waiting for you. Um, come with me. And Giranath Babu uh, said, yeah, okay. And then Swift, as swiftly as he said that, he kind of disappeared into, <laughs> into the crowd and, and gave him some enigmatic smile. Um, so it's like, it's quite a, it's one of those scenes in, in a movie which makes absolutely no sense. Um, and, then, and then later on, like halfway through the film, then it kind of like things transpire and then you understand fully what happened. But at the time, it must have been, and reading it there is, is quite cool because it's like a we start at the end so we know what happened so it's quite it's quite a cool way that uh, the story is um, narrated here um the um i we're going to talk about the enigmatic glance a bit later but um in so what this obviously um, swami pranavananda is in the is actually um, he's he's done uh, something called bilocation, which we again talked about last episode, but we'll talk about it a bit more detail here. Um, so <clears throat> he was essentially in the room with Mukunda and went into two periods of meditation. The first one we discussed last time was to locate Kedanath Babu. And the second one, uh, again, this is a theory, uh, was whilst he was actually, um, you know, bilocating, I, I creating a new form um, to meet Kiranath Babu at the, at the um, Ganges. And that's what I'm talking about. So let's talk about this. So this is obviously no mean feat, this bilocation capability. And we'll, we're going to have a first-hand recount of young Mukunda's 
explanation or like his surprise or his experience of this um, a bit later. So it's no mean feat, uh, Mike. And it's it's wrapped in this super innocent story, which I found very interesting because it would actually be something that wouldn't be so easy to describe. Like if if Guruji went on in a scientific way and say like, oh yeah, by location, la 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 la, right? And then, but instead it is like this um, story where um, you don't expect a miracle to happen. And um, there's little things like little cues. I think we talked about it uh, before already, but how can, like, imagine you you meet someone, right? And you, um, you're in the street and you're not, you, like you're not taking a car, you're not on a horse or something like that, right? You're just going home now. And this other person's also gonna meet you home and you go like, yeah, but I, I don't have time right now. I have to go, right? And then he just runs off, <laughs> even though he's an old man, <laughs> but he, he seems to be perfectly capable of, of outpacing him and still, still be at home before, before the other guy, which I, I found, Funny, I would have expected in in a normal sense that they would just walk together to his house, but that's not how it goes at all. Mm. And there's um, obviously there must be a reason why he decided to um, leave Kedarnath Babu behind. He kind of asked him, "How long will it take you?" And he said, "Half an hour." And then Kedar and then Swami Brahmananda said, "Fine, I'll see you there." Then he walked off into the crowd of distance. So let's let's imagine the inverse happened. And he walked with him. <laughs> and then he would have walked into the room where his <laughs> the body was. <laughs> now, herein lies the reason, I think, why he had to do this. Because he, he may have been a realized master, so we may call him an avatar. But he is not a Mahavata. So a Mahavata is a Babaji, right? And in, in Hindu mythology, Bhagavan Krishna was a Mahavata. And... By, by location in this story is uh, is you know quite it's quite prevalent but tri quad it, there's a very famous picture probably my famous picture painting of krishna in um in in india and it's basically i put it on the card there so what you see there is it's krishna dancing with basically infinite number of gopis so this is the Ras Leela. So every night, um, Krishna would, you know, play and dance with, with all the girls. And all the girls would want to dance with him. And that's obviously all the girls of the village. So actually, he actually manifested. So each girl thought uh, and actually experienced Krishna to be with them during this dance. And now this is this is where it's uh, pretty magical because this is what a Mahavatar can do because a Mahavatar is not li limited by um, a single space, right? He's not limited by being here and only here. So like you may ask a Mahavatar, how are you able to be such a personal guru to me and also at the same time be a personal guru to X, Y, Y person, Z person, and Krishna manifested it. And this is why uh, the story, you know, Krishna's childhood stories are so, so, so ludicrously like uh, famous and they're so like, you know, they're so worshipped and because of the, the magic and, and the, 
the beauty of devotion that it kind of imbues in your own life when you're thinking of the incarnation that was Krishna. And Mike? So many questions now. Um, <laughs> so, so do you think those gopis, they, when they looked around, they saw all those different Krishnas? This, this is it, though. They, they, if, you look yeah. at the, if you look at the paintings yeah. where, um, mm -hmm. where yeah. this is, they're totally engrossed. Complete, there, could be, right. there could be a trillion Krishnas. They would only see the one that's in front of them because they're completely right. okay. engrossed. And, um, and they, they, they talk about this, um, the, the kind of drug-like drug effect that he would kind of have on his devotees. Um, which is with you know through everything through his looks his 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 sweet his his speech every single thing. There's a very um, beautiful song called um, Maduram. Maduram is sweet, and uh, it describes like all his sweet attributes. Like it says, like even his fingertips are sweet. <laughs> so his hair is sweet. His voice is sweet. His eyes are sweet. So this is a really beautiful um, song called Maduram. Which is uh, famous, uh, famous in India. So yeah. So here, so let's compare the two. So um, Swami Swami Pranavananda had to kind of set this up in a way where he had to he he did this you know miracle of bilocation, but he had to do it in a way where he was like he was meditating, right? He closed his eyes and meditated and basically said, "Don't disturb me. I'm I'm doing something that's a feat of, you know." Uh, science, uh, mystical science, and then he performed it. But Krishna obviously requires no such uh, no such requirement. He can just manifest himself in this way, and um, he doesn't need to have you know wooden sandals here and loincloth appearing there. He can he can appear in different clothes in different places, as it were. Yeah, Mike. So we're saying that his. Consciousness can only be in one place. It's either in this body or in the other. That one, that is what that is what it appears. Time. Yeah, that is what it appears mm -hmm. like because because uh, he in this is why we I took the effort in the last episode to split out the the time where he's actually um, doing the bilocation because for example when he's 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 standing still for half an hour pretty much and Mukunda's like just saying what's pretty much what's going on and at that point obviously he's actually with Kedar and Baba walking back or doing some other errand that we're not told about Lauren yeah it also says um in the section just before that we did last week that his eyes sparkled as if observing something of interest and then grew dull mm. so that would mm. go in line with what you're saying yeah yeah <clears throat> it's a really beautiful and quite deep especially if you if you relate it to the techniques he's using um which we talked about in the last episode which i really enjoyed um so yeah that's the bilocation of swami give uh, swami um, pranavananda and the infinite location of a, a mahavatar such as krishna uh, mike so imagine the story would have been he walks home with Kedarnath Babu, and then they, the two bodies meet, and then one of them disappears or something. Um, would have been a more in-your-face miracle. <laughs> this way, this way, they actually talk to each other. I mean, they still figured out that something was was off because. Um, uh, but I, I really like the Krishna painting where you have all those Krishnas together because. I always had to think of, I don't know if you guys watched Back to the Future, the movie, where the professor 
kept telling Marty, Marty, you cannot see yourself because that will destroy like the space <laughs> time continuum or something like that. <laughs> but it might might not have been very accurate that movie. Maybe it's not that Yeah, I was gonna say if he like appears in two places at once, like with without the uh full awareness then there might be like a black hole created <laughs> you, <laughs> exactly. you've broken it <laughs> you've broken the system <laughs> but i'm sure swami pranavananda would not have created a black hole yeah chris you know at a slightly more mediocre topic um what's when i first read this and looking back now at it it he said here we went hand in hand and I thought, you know, that's peculiar because in the culture in the UK, two men don't normally go hand in hand. But actually, in India, I think they do, right? It's actually yes. it's common for two men to hold hands. And yeah. it's I'm just laughing. I'm just laughing now to myself because it is miraculous what we're reading. We're quite right to focus on the topic that we're focusing on because it's it is the subject here. Um, but when I read it, I thought, oh, that's that's strange. Like you know, two men going hand in hand, like that, that stood out to me. <laughs> uh, it just shows, you know, what the mind can pay attention to sometimes and, you know, how you prioritize information. But but that, uh, I remember when, when I first read that, I thought, oh, that's that's really sweet, you know, in some ways, like two two friends or, or maybe it signifies something there. But I think it's it's simply common in Indian culture to for two acquaintances, male acquaintances to do that if they're fond of each other. I think. Yes, well, close, yep. Very much so. Friends, um, brothers, um, father and son, um, all those kind of relations would <clears throat> would do that. I, I I thought it was I found it a bit weird as well. Remember when I um um the first time I went after it was like quite a few years, like five years or something, I gap in my childhood. And then my cousin, my older cousin held my hand. And I was like, oh my God, what's going on here? <laughs> Pretty much as you reacted. And then I very quickly realized this is this is a, obviously a cultural uh, difference. Chris? Yeah. I, I suppose in the UK, it's very common for young children, you know, boys to hold hands, you know, to, to kind of keep each other <clears throat> together in a unit. Um, but what struck me odd about it in some way is that India is like the spiritual hub of the world, right? But yet in yoga, they say essentially to be mindful about connecting with others, you know, with, your, with hands, because you're creating that magnetic field between the two of you. Yoga Dante talks about this a little, a little bit. So even when you meet somebody, you're looking at them, with, you know, in, in their eyes and you're, you're forming this, uh, you're transferring this magnetic power from one to the other. And I think it even goes as far as to say, if one is weak and the other one's strong, it, the, the flow goes from strong to weak. So be mindful that you may be giving away some of your power, something to that effect. I think it's in the lessons. Um, so for that to be common in India, I thought actually that's more peculiar to me than the cultural aspect of it. Um, because you prana, you know, normally, you know, you, you put your hands together. And to me, that signifies this union between the, the different uh, the left and the right uh, currents of electrical currents and you can amplify the prayers and things like this but yet it seems common to do that in india so i thought it was almost like a you know it didn't didn't quite fit that conceptualization that i made to my mind but 
talk about hand in hand. The next line is the Swami in his wooden sandals was able to outpace me. So wooden sandals. Um, still really haven't figured out the mystery of the significance of the wooden sandals. And other than just the fact that it's proving that it was it was the same person and the same clothes and items that he wore, um, but it seems to mention it. Um, wooden sandals, uh, they're like, the, the, the famous ones are basically you have a pretty much a strip of wood, <clears throat> very thin strip of, strip of wood that would form like the, the sole of, the, of a shoe. And then in the middle where, you, where your toe and your first um, finger of the toes is, there's, um, there's like a, another bit of wood that comes up, protrudes upwards, and then you kind of grip that with your toes and then you can walk along and this is why so there's no like um uh, kind of strap around the top this is it you're using your your thumb your toe to grip this little protruding wood out of the sole which is also made of wood um and you're walking along so this is why yeah Babu is saying that i don't know how this this uh, monk was able to outpace me uh, mike those do not look comfortable to wear at all. <laughs> it barely looked like something useful. I would probably be faster barefoot than those. Yes, Lauren. I'm really curious why he didn't walk barefoot. I thought that was quite common. Um, I know if I had a choice between wooden sandals and bare feet, I would definitely go for bare feet. Um, but then again, I'm often wandering around barefoot. Um, but I did actually look up the history of these wooden sandals. <laughs> I love a good fact. And I thought anyone out there might be interested to know. So I'll, I'll briefly run us through the, the history of these wooden sandals. Um, apparently, they're called Paduka sandals from India. Um, and they're said to be worn by Hindu priests and are associated with holiness, which kind of ties in with who we're talking about here. Um, apparently, the shoes themselves, because some of them have a little like raised platform on like the, the toe area underneath and underneath the heel area as well. And it's uh, apparently uh, the stilts help the wearer to avoid unnecessarily trampling plants and insects to encourage the practice of minimizing violence. So potentially could have been for that. Um, or uh, another source says that, you know, they were for protection, protection basically with the rough roads and things in India. But who knows? It is very curious. Um, like I said, I don't know why he didn't just go barefoot, but maybe that's the free spirit in me. I don't know. What do you think, Chris? Well, I, I think there's like a golden thread of, uh, I suppose, uh, that, that we can take from this. One is that he was initially baffled at how Pranamadanda was able to find him. So he said he felt baffled over his inexplic inexplicable presence. So he was shocked that he was there. And then he was shocked that he could outpace him because he was wearing wooden sandals. He, he himself was wearing these sturdy walking shoes whilst Pranabhananda was wearing these wooden sandals. And then he was shocked again by how abruptly Pranabhananda left and in the manner of which, you know, he was able to just to kind of, kind of go. And obviously he was 
beaten uh, he was beaten to the house by Pranamananda. So he was shocked a few times here. And I think the golden thread really is he's piecing together the reality of what's happened. He's saying, oh, right. So somehow he was able to find me. Somehow he was able to outpace me. And somehow he was able to beat me back here or he vanished, something like this. So I think he maybe intuitively was aware, okay, well, this is no ordinary man, you know, ordinary individual. He's using some form of you know, spiritual divine power. Uh, and he's coming to this realization slowly. He was able to realize that something was not quite normal about the interaction. And I think the wooden sandals, possibly it is that you maybe walk slower paced or, you you know, you don't walk as briskly as you might walk with stout walking shoes. So that's an ob obvious one there. But maybe something that I'm taking is that if you're projecting some form of physical body, you're even being able to bilocate. Do gra does gravity apply? Like, do the rules of physics necessarily apply to that body, as it does to your first one? If you're able to manipulate atoms, you know, in, at a distance to manifest. So maybe there's something to that as well mm. um, that he's able to kind of move <laughs> without the. The pull of of gravity on his on his physical form as it normally would. Mm. Lauren had the hypothesis last time that it was like it may have been like a projection, a light projection in that space. So I'm not sure about that now. Oh, she's changed. Changed. Well, just because um, he says that they held hands, mm. and that's what Wakunda can understand how it could be real because you know he sort of questions that and uh Kadar gets quite uh angry about the fact that he doesn't believe him <laughs> but so in that sense I think actually my comment before probably wasn't correct there would have been that to, to be able to hold but and there's got to be some sort of astral physics going on here <laughs> um yeah it's quite curious Mike um uh, they also mentioned the sandals uh, again, because they are also at his house, right? Mm -hmm. So he must have duplicated the sandals, and that kind of helped um, make sure that they they that they don't say like, oh, maybe it was another person or something like that. So to completely make sure in their minds that a miracle happened, and not some some other person who maybe um, was was uh, doing something else at the time. Mm -hmm. Probably, uh, I conjecture again, but it probably is, uh, Mike, you know, you said back of the future thing about like messing up stuff, like when you, um, if if he did walk back into the room with these, you know, with this new body and this other pair of shoes and other loincloth that he was wearing, like those, those atoms he would have like garnered from wherever, you know, the creation around him. And then he essentially has to give them back, right? It's like a small loan um and hence he does that otherwise if he, if he brought them all into the same space <laughs> then like yeah it's it's fun i've conjectured <laughs> speculate a little bit on this stuff mm -hmm. but let's talk about uh point of views <clears throat> so let's start with um should we start with Kedarnath babu then yeah so he's having his as we mentioned, he's having his peaceful bathe in the in the Ganges, and he 
you know, meets this man who is who he's met before, Swami Pranavananda, and who thought he was just a ordinary Swami, he says later. But um, so he meets him out of the blue, and then he kind of, uh, you know, they have this nice little reunion, kind of. And then he tells him the purpose of what he was there for, which is all sounds normal right now, other than the fact that he's just come completely out of the blue. Uh, how did he know he was there? Um, because um, meet, meeting someone out of the blue would be fine if you didn't also have a very specific thing that you needed from them. So like you obviously meet you meet strangers all the time, but they don't go, oh, there's someone at the end of the platform here. They've been asking to to see you. Can you come with me? That would, that would freak you out, wouldn't it, Mike? Yeah, we don't really know what significance this whole meeting had for Kedranath Babu in his life. Maybe it turned out that this is how he found his guru. Um, so it was very significant. Or maybe um, at least it opened his mind to a spiritual life that he didn't see before. Um, so I, I think if, if, you, if you think about his perspective, it might have been for the three of them, he, for him, it might have been the most significant. Because mm, he already um, would have met um, Lahiri Mahashai, wouldn't he? Um, but uh, for some, whatever reason, he, that, that miracle of meeting such an avatar did not uh, hit him probably as much as this one did somehow, Lauren? Mm. It's also strange to me that he was surprised because even as a Swami, you would hope or assume that a Swami has highly intuitive perception, right? So the fact that he's able to know where he is, surely that's kind of usual for people with that capacity. Um, this is what yeah. I thought, actually. After I read the autobiography of a yogi, this is what I thought, and this is why I related that story last time of um, that, that, that monk who um, kind of read my mind i thought it was that this why i was practicing that technique of trying to speak to him through my prayers because i thought it was a uh, normal but <laughs> after reading the autobiography of a yogi you would think it's normal but other than that <laughs> it's like a miraculous you because there's so many swamis in india you know that you'd meet like thousands in your lifetime and not one of them would exhibit anything close to resembling what we we're talking about here yeah, I suppose that's what marks the difference, isn't it, between someone who's more realized or has yeah. more sort of yogic abilities. Because he also, later on in the chapter, he said, you know, he thought the Swami was just an ordinary man. Mm. I mean, like for, for me, being from England and, you know, like you say, not having that culture of having Swamis everywhere on your doorstep. If I met a Swami, I'd be like, OK, well, they've, they've probably got, you know, lots and lots of... <laughs> powers and abilities um i can't imagine not considering a swami as uh no i can't imagine considering a swami as ordinary mm. i don't know about any of you but that kind of strikes me as like really odd um yeah mike what do you think so what one sentiment you often get from the autobiography of a yogi um often as people who grow up in india they're a bit jaded with the whole Swami miracle thing because mm. for I think for every Swami that does miracles there's a thousand others who don't do anything right <laughs> and um and so you actually when something like this happens it is uh 
special, I think, also in India. And um, for for Guruji, I mean, he will, this is not the only miracle he saw, and he he will see quite a lot. And and that's um that's why his life is so special because he kind of magically attracts all those all those saints into his life at a very young age, right? So um, Kedarnath Babu, um, obviously, is meeting this one of those genuine saints, as Mike just called it. Um, and then I found this bit really interesting, where he says, he, whilst they're walking hand in hand, they kind of he outpaces, Swami Brandananda outpaces him a little bit, and then he stops suddenly and says, "How long will it take you to reach my place?" And then Kedarnath Babu says, "Half an hour," and then. Swami Pranavan says, I've got something else to do. And then he gives him an enigmatic glance. And he says, I must leave you behind. You can join me at my house where Bhagavati's son and I will be waiting for you. Um, so this is this would have been uh, uh, probably a clue to him, perhaps, uh, that something insane is about to transpire. Because he said, before, before I could remonstrate, he dashed swiftly into the crowd. So this an enigmatic glance, I think, you know, like you sometimes you can imagine like someone's eyes twinkling, um, something mysterious or mystical is going to happen. And this, I think, would have been his <clears throat> second clue of the day, shall we say. Um, the first one being him knowing him exact, exactly there. And yeah, Mike. I think also the, the half an hour is a clue, right, for us, because um, just a few paragraphs before he says, um, uh, he the, he says to Mukunda, right, that he says he uh, should wait for half an hour, mm. right, mm. and then exactly after half an hour he looks at his <laughs> at, his, at his watch, right, and, and then he says, oh yeah, there's something coming up the stairs. So it's um, probably the 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 um, chain of events was he was like with Kerenath Babu talking to him with his astral television asking him how, how long it's going to be half an hour and then he goes to Bakuna and says oh how about you wait hang on for half an hour <laughs> and then he he kind of says um I've got something else to do at present now do you think he was mm. actually doing other stuff <laughs> <laughs> Mike he was he was there for neither in, the, in this half an hour, right? He was yeah. meditating on the one end. On the other hand, he was gone, so he might yeah. have been in a third place, just yeah. having lunch or something. There yeah. could have been a third devotee <laughs> that needed his um, or that, yeah. <laughs> or he, he needed to um, polish, get his wooden sandals sanded, and <laughs> which is why the sandals are there, but we know nothing about the mystery of the sandals. <laughs> Lauren, <laughs> I thought it was because um, Mukunda became restless in the room, and that's when he was like, "Oh yeah, he's coming in half an hour," because he's just had the conversation, right? And then he's come back in the room. He's probably sensed that Mukunda's getting really, really restless, and he's like, "Oh, I'm gonna have to go back now." Um, but yeah, I never considered that he could have actually just gone off to do something else. <laughs> Why not? But yeah, that was my initial reaction that he'd gone back into his. Well, maybe it uniform. takes that long to remerge. Maybe bilocated, yeah. Body, Mike. You think that's how everyone is going to be in the higher ages? Like, my default body will always stay at home, meditate all day, 
And then whenever <laughs> I need to do something, I will duplicate myself and go there, visit that person. Um, because it's much easier to do that than to actually move my body there. <laughs> but then, Mike, you won't be able to fulfill Guruji's aim of like each meditation should be deeper than the last because it'll always be meditating. So then, how can you? Do that? <laughs> that's the that's the only way how you can actually achieve that. You have one constant meditation throughout your whole life. <laughs> Stay in that depth. Mm. And then, um, then he finally gets to um you know gets to see Mukunda and then Mukunda's like uh what you know what is basically challenges him saying what 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 are you talking about how did you get here um did you actually see him in a, or meet him in a vision or did you actually sorry did you meet him in a vision or did you actually see him and he said did you touch his hand and then we know that they did touch hands so this is these are all these intricate details um so we we kind of yeah, Lauren, it kind of kind of confirms that it wasn't a vision in this uh, mm, line yeah. of questioning. Yeah, um, and then uh, and then and then he's then Mukhidanath Babu is like, what well, the you know he gets a bit annoyed and frustrated, <laughs> and saying, "I'm not lying to you. How else would I have known that you're here?" Etc. Yeah, Lauren, I really enjoyed reading this bit again when he gets angrily, uh, you know, replies to him. Because I feel like there's like a really, really subtle lesson in there. Because if you look at how Mukunda replies, even as a young boy, it could have been so easy for him to get angry back or get frustrated. You know, <laughs> he was already feeling all these emotions and getting really like bewildered and confused. But instead, he just meets him with an explanation of what happened rather than anything else. And from that, then they're able to understand each other and connect again and, and go back into the room. And I feel like that's such a big life lesson. Like how often do we really meet anger with calmness and explanation and mm. connection? Um, and it's such a small moment, like it's not even highlighted, it's just there existing. And I think it's really beautiful. And it's, um, yeah, it's a really nice reminder. Gedernath Babu's anger, I think, is not justified, but understandable because he's mm. kind of like questioning his yeah. honesty like or like his sanity so he's mm -hmm. actually getting kind of angry justifiably whereas Mukunda's anger is more like a um it's a excited excited um you know response he's just getting more and more excited as he's like getting more and more information out of Kiranath Babu so it's uh yeah it's, it's one of like um it's astonishment as 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 well as like um excitement yeah Mike I think that's really good observations of you two. And I, I think um, it is because there's, it doesn't make sense, right? So he keeps interrogating him. He goes like, this makes absolutely no sense. I need to tell you this now and this, right? And then at the end, instead of remaining in this angry state, both of them um, just understand what's actually going on and the anger vanishes because of that. Yeah, exactly. And also, I've just realized, like, this is what Guruji is always teaching us. Like, don't just believe things blindly. Question them. Mm. Like, you know, experience them for yourself before you, you know, accept that as truth. And that's exactly what he's doing here there. When, Mike, you were just saying, you know, he's asking questions all the time. Like, that is him trying to get to the root of truth. Mm. That's a very, very good point, Lauren. Teaching us to 
the way to be inquisitive. <laughs> mm. um, then, then I really like this dramatic uh, line where Guruji Mukunda says, why this man, that man, Swami Brananavananda, has not left my sight a moment since I first came here an hour ago. <laughs> And he blurted out the whole story. It's such a, you can imagine them both like m mouths open, eyes wide, fully, fully engaged in that moment. Um, and, and then, and then I'd really love Swami Pranavanan's, uh, sorry, uh, Kiranath Mabu's response to this, the story that he's just heard, because he says his eyes, his eyes opened wide. Are we living in this material age or are we dreaming? I never expected to witness such a miracle in my life. I thought this Swami was just an ordinary man, and now I find he can materialize an extra body and work through it. So I think herein lies the impact or the purpose of this narrative or this scene, an occasion for Kedanath Babu, because even though he'd Met Lady Mahasaya. Perhaps he just met him as a, uh, as a you know, accounts clerk <laughs> at the railway Nagpur Bengal Nagpur Railway Company, as opposed to realizing his full divinity. And um, he kind of had to wait. I don't know how many years or months since that meeting with, and then meeting one of his devotees, uh, who is you know Swami Pranavananda, and seeing this miracle before his eyes. Yeah, Mike. It, I think this answer that he gives Karanath Babu is is a shows a very high state of development as well, right? Because he just immediately says that we are not living in this material world. He makes this a possibility at once, right, without hesitation. Mm -hmm. um, which I, I I could imagine other responses here, like <laughs> just going in, <laughs> to going insane, something mm -hmm. like that. <laughs> yeah. So they entered the saint's room, Kedarnath Babu, and then they looked at the shoes. The shoes um, come out again <laughs> under the platform seat. But um, so there's probably three or four mentions of these shoes and sandals. So, you know, I don't think we've really cracked why they're mentioned this often, other than the obvious. So if any, everyone's got any, if anyone's got any feedback on that, we would vastly, would greatly appreciate it. Mike? I'm really glad we went to the bottom of um, what those shoes look like and what they are, because because <laughs> um, growing up in Europe, when I heard wooden sandals, I was thinking of like those, you know, those Dutch clock shoes. Me too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thinking about it. I think the Indian version is a lot more elegant. It is. And there's even different styles in the Indian elements. Oh, yeah. You've got one that's like more more flat with the platforms underneath, and then you've got the flat shoe which has like toe carvings out of it. They're really quite mm. pretty. I mean, I'm not sure I'd wear them to be honest, but I mean, you know. Next time I go to India, Lauren, I'm getting you a pair of wooden sandals. <laughs> I have to overcome my discomfort in the body. Maybe that's a life lesson for me. Indeed. Wear them everywhere. Indeed. So. So then they come, Giranath Babu then goes into the room and then they bow, Giranath Babu bows before Swami Pranavanda. So now let's talk, let's think about this from the perspective, if we can, of Swami Pranavanda. <laughs> so 
he is meditating in his parlor. Akunda comes in, and he's expecting him. And he knows um then then he has to yeah Mike. Uh oh yeah, I love your build-up. The, the the two questions I would throw in there is or the, the one question is like uh you are Swami Pranabananda, you see this opportunity, Mukunda, coming to you. And what what is your objective in this? What do you want? What do you what do you want to convey or what do you want to communicate? Yeah. I think considering his state of um, awareness. <laughs> yeah, which he, is everything, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he was fully, I think, fully enjoying this <laughs> scene that was about to transpire. And in his awareness, he probably would have known that 100 years from today, there's these four idiots in around the globe <laughs> that are going to gonna discuss and get wrong to death. This, these little, you know, that sixty minutes of happenings, but he would have he would have known that um, he now is playing a part in Mukunda's, you know, Mukunda's transformation from the boy Mukunda to to Yogananda, and it was a like a step by step process, and this was a significant significant step, and hence it's why it's got a whole chapter dedicated to it. So he would have, I think, he would have foreseen it happening, and then. I think he had the most fun that he could with it. Um, and he added all these quirks with, you know, the wooden sandals and, and the loincloth, just the loincloth and, yeah, meeting meeting Giranath Babu and surprising him. And, you know, and then I, I really can imagine him from behind, you know, when Giranath Babu and Mukunda are discussing and being completely amazed and, you know, surprised at what they're discovering as they're asking each other questions him just like knowing what's going on from the other side of the door from above the stairs and just like smiling to himself <laughs> mike um so he was friends with uh mukunda's father right bhagavati mm. and i wonder if bhagavati knew that he was pulling those two body by location uh, miracles or if he didn't know because he could have warned Mukunda. He could have said, uh, "Beware, he he, um, or he's famous for doing this." Or maybe he um, didn't do this very often. Maybe he just did this for Mukunda to to um, show him divinity, the divinity in himself. Um, I because when he calls him the saint with two bodies, I wonder if that means he calls him that because he's doing that on a on a regular basis. I feel like maybe the the last one, Mike, the fact that he, mm. you know, just knew that his son would be would benefit from the Swami's presence. Because the only reason I say that is in quite a few chapters later, they Mukunda and his father meet the Swami again, and the Swami makes a comment and he says, you know, why aren't you kind of doing as well as your son? You need to meditate more. <laughs> so I feel like maybe um, his father perhaps didn't have the knowledge yet of the full unfolding of events. Obviously, that is just conjecture. I will never know. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. And a little bit later, we actually can un unwrap that a little bit more. Mm, yeah. um, because um, uh, Swami Pranavananda um, 
he has said well he we'll talk about it later but he talks about him you know doing this often and meeting his devotees from around the world and then he would have perhaps got a reputation <laughs> for doing this um and yeah so that's that that's point of view so um I think it was quite cool to see it from each person's eyes, mm. um, which is a different different experience. Um, so the he, then Mukunda obviously is still surprised. So he's Mukunda's watching now. Kedar and Nath Babu potentially accepting Swami Pranavananda's guru. I don't know, but he's bowing to before him. And then now the saint um, kind of turns to Mukunda and quizzically with a quizzical smile he describes it why are you stupefied at all this the subtle unity of the phenomenal world is not hidden from true yogis i instantly see and converse with my disciples in distant calcutta there can they can similarly transcend at will every obstacle of gross matter so describing there that this is not his first time, shall we say? <laughs> and and similarly and astonishingly, he's saying that um, the his disciples also <laughs> they can similarly transcend to basically do the same thing. <laughs> so he's got disciples that can apparently bilocate as well. But I, I really love the um, the first the this first his first main point: the subtle unity of the phenomenal world is not hidden from true yogis. So he's saying, why are you stupefied by all this? You are a true yogi. You should not be stupefied by this, um, which is, I think, a really important point because, um, you know, as we read in Majida, Mukunda, even at that young age, is uh, very advanced, shall we say. <laughs> mm. um, yeah. Uh, I think it's really... Yeah, I think it's a really, really profound, one of the most profound uh, sections, actually, of the autobiography, mm. this, this section. It's, the words are so beautifully put together as well. Um, and it kind of, we may as well talk about this, because earlier, um, Lehi Mahasha said, um, said to his devotees, why come and view my flesh and bones when I am within when I'm ever within range of your kutashta or spiritual sight. Um, and here, kind of, he's also saying well, actually the same thing. So he didn't never went to, he didn't physically need to go to these, potentially these devotees. He used to be able to commune with them through their kutashta, perhaps, um, as well as physical bilocation, as he proved in this chapter, uh, Lauren. I also feel like, you know, when he says that line, when it's like, why are you stupefied? He's kind of speaking to the reader as well, mm. because I feel like our reaction to that story is a reflection of where we're at at the moment, right? In our journey of realization. And it's kind of, to me at least, it's saying, well, once you are a true yogi, you will not be stupefied by any of this. And this is all available to you right now. And it's kind of like through Mukunda, he's also speaking with us, um, which is a really like beautiful way of conversing with the world, I guess, through your dialogue with other people. Yeah, indeed it is. Um, so then what happens is 
Mukunda says, it was probably an effort to stir my spiritual ardor in my young breast that the Swami had condescended to tell me of his powers of his astral and radio television. But instead of enthusiasm, I experienced only awestruck fear. And then Mukunda describes he basically wasn't um, he wasn't uh, inclined to accept um, Swami Pranavananda as his teacher, he says, not guru, teacher. And then he glanced at him doubtfully. Um, and then the next, that's that's where we're going to end it. But in the next um, section, in the next episode, you know, Swami Pranavananda kind of clarifies or makes him, make puts his mind at ease. Um, yeah, Chris? Even even though this story might be for the reader, for us, and Yogananda's life as an avatar was played out, you know, for, for us in, in many ways, he still does use quite strong words to describe how he felt there. You know, as a mm. young boy, you can only sort of empathize with the, gra- you know, having to deal with the gravitas of, of this information, having to process that. But it it is quite nice to think about it, that he's actually learning through uh you know through the people involved not actually having it done to himself not having actually had that experience himself so he's like oh like you experienced this and you've been sitting here so i can put the two together and Mm -hmm. it's a little bit of a softer landing for the reader for us as well as maybe for the young boy yogananda and makunda at the time as well um because could you Put yourself in the shoes of Mukunda, and would you believe it at that age? And obviously, as an avatar, it's comparing apples and apples and pears in some ways. But I think as a as a young boy, uh, it would have made it would have made the learning experience easier. Um, and uh, yeah, certainly, certainly for us, Yogananda retells the story in a way that I felt like I was there as well, and I felt like I was learning through his eyes. So he's he's a master storyteller, and I think it all helps piece things together as to how things might work. Mm. The um, the hesitant Makunda, I am acknowledging the Swami Pranavananda as, as a guru. Why do you think he was so hesitant? I think Mike put this question, seeing as he was seeking a true man of God, you know, from the very earliest um, age. Um, from his very early youth, and this clearly is a true man of God. He's a disciple of his, you know, family guru, Lady Masha, and his father recommended him, and now he's shown him, you know, and not through like vanity. He's he's explaining here. He's kind of shown him to, you know, to bring about, you know, that spirit, inspire him spiritually, basically. But yet, Mukunda is still not. Um, willing to or he's a bit scared to acknowledge what that could mean for him um, if if he is his guru lauren i feel like it all comes down to intuition you know he was very very in tune wasn't he even from a young age with divine mother and we've seen so far that you know he only has to speak with divine mother and she'll give him whatever he asks and all of this and then he meets someone who is a who is you know a master a yogi but he knows that that's not the teacher for him. That's not his guru. And I feel like that's just so telling of 
where he was in his own spiritual journey of like, well, he just knew instantly. Um, but it's also, again, it's a lesson for us that your intuition always knows the true unclouded intuition that's not, you know, got any other mind matter in it. Um, you know, the soul speaks. And I feel like him having no inclination was exactly what needed to be because it wasn't meant for him. Indeed. Um so how do we yeah mike sorry yeah i also feel that um swami pranabhananda is like this very highly evolved master and he and has disciples of his own and is a disciple of um lahiri mahashaya and maybe because of that he didn't want there just to be an opaque situation he wanted this to be a clear um like he didn't want to lead Mukunda on and that because he probably knew himself that he wasn't going to be his guru, right? Mm. And speaking of that topic, how um in our lives do we know that someone is or is not our guru? Very difficult question. <laughs> but one that we have to kind of ask because Mukunda has gone through it in this very chapter, in this very bit that we've read out. Mike? Uh, I think Lauren just gave a really good hint with intuition, right? Because I feel like, you know, intuition is sometimes something that is very hard to, to like gauge and it's hard to know, is this my intuition or not? But the, the good thing with a guru is that it's not one question that is asked at one point in time, but it comes back to you again and again, basically every day, right? You, every, like, you know how pe some people say they're married um, and they feel like I'm choosing my partner every day over and over again. And it's a bit like that with the guru as well, right? And, and, and I feel like the conviction grows inside you, the more experiences you have it, and then it becomes a stronger bond and then loyalty. So I think in the beginning, when you choose your guru, it is quite difficult. But once you've found him, I think it becomes this intuition becomes easier and easier to um, to detect in yourself. Mm. Difficult ones to answer. Lauren, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't have a concrete answer, but Mike just said a, a couple of words that really like sprung out at me. He said, when you choose a guru, and it just made me think like, I'm not sure in my own experience if we do choose our guru. I think our guru chooses us. Um, just from my own journey into this, it's kind of like you have no idea until he lands in your life that he's been there all along. And um, yeah, like you say, it's that like special bond, isn't it? That kind of transcends everything. Um, but it's also interesting because we know from this book that people have, um, it's, I may have not actually not been this book, but I've, I remember reading stories of people going to Guruji and saying, I want you to be my guru. And him saying, oh, I'm not your guru. Such and such is your guru. So even then it's like, you can feel a, feel a pull towards a particular master, but it's not actually your guru, which is interesting in itself. Um, yeah, just want to throw into the uh, ether there. <laughs> Um, let's talk, let's do a bit of a reading about these mm. 
the theory here. Um, so uh, let's open the card, The Mastery of the Gurus. Um, I'll start. Uh, when, when you are moving blindly through the valley of life, stumbling in the darkness, you need the help of someone who has eyes. You need a guru. To follow one who is enlightened is the only way out of the great muddle that has been created in the world. I never found true happiness and freedom until I met my guru. He who is spiritually interested in me and he and who has the wisdom to guide me. Um, Brother Nandamoy, in uh, coming back to Lauren, what you were saying about him picking us. Uh, he, in many of his talks, he says each of us were handpicked <laughs> for for this, not just you know for our own liberation, but for the work that's needed to be done in the world, and you know for him to lead us and inspire us through that through that work. Um, Brother and the boy is just so good with some of his some of his talks. <laughs> um, I can't remember which talk it was, but a very powerful one. Lauren, do you want to carry on? Yeah, sure. Within your heart, cry constantly for God. When you have convinced the Lord of your desire for him, he will send someone, your guru, to teach you how to know him. Only he who knows God can show others how to know him. When I found such a one, my guru Swami Sri Dashwaji, I realized that God doesn't teach through mystery, but through illumined souls. Great. Yep. God is invisible, but he becomes visible through the intelligence and spiritual perception of one who is in constant communion with him. There may be many teachers in one's life, but there is only one uh, guru. He alone who is God realized and who has been commanded by God to redeem souls is a guru. One cannot be a guru merely by thinking he is. And if only people would adopt that definition of the guru, we would have much less confusion in the world about what a guru means. I really hate that they've taken that word and changed the meaning of it. All of English language speaking countries. Lauren? Um, just for our listeners and for myself, can you please enlighten us as to where this is from, please? So this know? is uh, on the Yogananda SRF website. Uh, this is just if you search for Yogananda and search for gurus, there's a whole list of amazing quotes of Yogananda in, in various speeches that he's given on the guru-disciple relationship and, and the guru topic itself. Um, but I'll get the link and we can include it in the yeah. description. Thank you. We shall do that. Good point, Lauren. Thank you. So I'm going back to the main text now. So he says, because there's a footnote, and a footnote um, is from something that um, Mukunda was reflecting on. He was saying that um, the concept, you know, the Swami had condescended to show, to tell me of his powers of astral radio and television. And then there is a footnote about astral radio and television. And it's really from a scientific uh, research done by Dr. Giuseppe 
Calgarist, is that my correct pronunciation of an Italian? Close enough. Close enough. <laughs> <laughs> Who was a professor of neuropsychology um, in 1930s in Rome, in the University of Rome. And he kind of did these experiments where it's described in the footnote where he pressed certain parts of the body and the person responded with descriptions of persons and objects on another side, another part of the building or on a part behind a wall that wasn't visible to that subject. And then, so it's kind of like describing that, you know, te telepathy or astral visions or, you know, being able to see through walls is not a science fiction. It's very much, I can prove it to you. And he did prove it. And the, the professor, he told the professors that um, certain areas of the skin should be agitated and then supersensorial impressions enable this person to see objects that would otherwise not be able to be perceivable like, through, through walls, <laughs> through the ether. Um, so that is quite amazing. Um, so I did a bit of digging on this and it would appear that um, even though it's his own hypothesis, um, this kind of kind of comes back to a little bit about reflex reflexology, um, because he he um, he discovered that uh, you can do quite a lot with different uh, you know touching touching the body different parts of the body with certain instruments certain metal instruments etc and pressing for a certain length of time can have different impacts so this is only this uh, telepathic or astral vision thing was only one part of his research like he did he did all sorts of other research and he he you know you'd actually see that you could incite or you could instill compassion or happiness of people even make people angry you could um you could you know you could see someone's aura depending on what what you did um you can make someone less hungry or less thirsty or relieve pain so these are kind of things that you know we we kind of do do with other other sciences uh, such as um uh, what's the word what's the one with the needles acupuncture and key and reflexology but this his 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 um, research is it stands on its own in terms of methods and the where where he's actually pressing and the science he's using to explain it completely stands alone. For example, um, he to to receive some telepathic message, he would say that you can have to press the back of the right hand at certain points, and then that would immediately incite full like the person would feel full in the stomach. Um, and then they'd get sensations in the forehead and wow, where have we heard that? And then in that, then they would be able to receive a telepathic message. And similarly, to send a telepathic message, then you have to press at the back of the right of the forearm. Um, and then um, then you get watery eyes and a burning feeling. And then you can send, transmit some um, some some message to some distant part of the world and human um and similarly with auras you can see people's auras and it all gets very very mystical um, i'll put a link to the paper i found about it on the description um but chris you've uh you've got more experience than i do in this what do you think uh i can't can't say i've got more experience with you in in this particular field because 
this seems quite specific, isn't it? It's very, um, it's identifying parts of the body. It's mm -hmm. given specific use cases for it. So I have zero experience with that. I can't claim any at all, but um, I do, I do have some experience with another uh, experiment. Um, people may know the name uh, by remote viewing or remote perception. Uh, and I have had some training with that by a friend of mine um, who himself was trained by people who, who apparently, this is kind of the fun part in some ways, uh, trained people in the intelligent uh, intelligence branches of the governments in, in the UK and in the US. And apparently they're all over this for some of their more magical, uh, mystical elements of what, what they do. Are you an X-Man? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 I know you could make, yeah. make up uh, some sort of X team, <laughs> X, X people. Um, but it, it is. Yeah. Uh, I have no powers though. That's <laughs> I, I can be the one with the bow and arrow or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure we all have our hidden hidden powers in some ways. Yeah. Mm. But I have had I've had exercises where trying to perceive remote locations just through coordinates. So for example, a friend of mine got 50 locations all over the world, actually printed out a picture of what they looked like, put them into an envelope and marked each envelope with a random set of coordinates like X123 AB. And later, months later, he gave me a couple at random and we went through this training and you have to go into a meditative state. And this is the interesting part where you go into a meditative state um, and in that state you can seek to perceive what is at the end of the coordinates and you go through this it's quite scientific like step-by-step -step process of writing down your perceptions taste touch all the different senses and then you build a picture so you go through 12 different steps and you eventually you build a picture of what it might look like now this is a very rudimentary level one version of what we're kind of talking about here about remote um about by location i think because many levels further into this technique you can actually physically put yourself there so i think legitimately they have stumbled across this in the scientific community um, as to how to do this scientifically with and anybody can be trained in it. So it's quite fun to think about that. We know this through yoga. We know this through Yogananda and through the wisdom that, you know, we have in, in the safety in, in that as well. Um, that Yogananda says, don't get cut, too caught up in these things. You know, these, these things are fun. They're great. It's possible. Focus on the meditation, focus, focus on that. Um, and don't get too caught up in it. But there are people out there, I think in the scientific community that are experimenting with this to, to a reasonable degree that, it's not really in the mainstream, but yeah, it's like top secret. This is what I was thinking with this, with this research that they did this in Rome University. I wonder if they carried it forward because certainly, if it was, if it really come leaps and bounds, then we'd have it in mainstream medicine and in scientific uh, knowledge. But it seems to be in like either in hidden, you know, intelligence type applications or like. Um, either that or like people don't believe it like people don't think ref reflexology is a science they just think of it as like some thing that is you know disproved it's just you can't prove it and like it's just random and you know it's thought yeah it's, it's like it's reverse psychology and all that you know all that stuff um mike 
I feel that oftentimes those things don't really um, take root because we don't really understand them. And whatever we don't really understand, we have a hard time putting into practice that we we try to discard. Um, and and um, but the mere fact that it's in the autobiography of a yogi probably means that at some point we'll pick it up and mm -hmm. then people will say, oh yeah, he said that so many years ago, he knew it already. Yeah. Maybe yeah. You, you were Dr. Giuseppe Caligris, Mike, in past. I, sure, I'll take it. Past <laughs> he, looks, he looks a bit like me. With yeah. <laughs> <laughs> moustache, maybe. Yeah. yeah. If you got listeners, if you click on the link, uh, you can see a picture of um, the good doctor doing an experiment on a very unwilling looking, uh, <laughs> unwilling looking doctor. patient. Yeah. <laughs> Chris? I do think that it is to be talked about with some caution this subject because what my friend did he's a scientist and economist and things and he immediately tried to then apply it to understanding what might come up in the future and things like this and you supposedly you can do these things but the more i got into it and the more verifications i had that actually it is working it these things do work the more i actually got put off by it and i wasn't interested in it um, because I think there is a karmic cost in some ways. I kind of maybe intuitively sense that it's not to be messed with. You know, we're not we're not really meant to be playing God here in in the sense of um, using it for our own good, our own selfish needs for money purposes, for you know some something to leverage some kind of power influence over another, um, which I think is often where um, some some people's minds go with it. Um, and, and I reckon it is it is actually quite true where depending on the use case uh, will depend on how much karmic kind of imbalance it might cause and things like this. So um, I think Guru or Guru is quite right to say, you know, don't get too caught up in these things because one is just simply distracting and two, you might start to use it for, for wrong use cases. I think one prime use case would be working from home. Like yeah. you would not have to commute. <laughs> you could still be the office. Think that would be awesome um i have to share an observation like i i keep seeing like smoke uh next to you chris and i was wondering is it like a big crackling fire next to where you are this this is my anti-mosquito um uh, yes. i've got i've got some it's not this. some bi-location development smoke or anything <laughs> capability <laughs> smoldering somehow yeah uh, it's like back to the future isn't it <laughs> the inverse of kryptonite somehow yeah um mike um, there was some sort of craziness that happened in your room you nearly jumped out of your seat i saw what was that a couple of minutes ago <laughs> yeah there was uh, the i have an autobiography of a yogi in my bookshelf and it just fell off <laughs> fell down <laughs> wow what were we talking about when that yeah happened? what were we talking about exactly at that second I need to rewind and see yeah. Oh no! I no, I I and it it fell exactly on, at at the last page of the Law of Miracles. So I was like, <laughs> "Who was it? Who was it? We had a guest once where like they were in the yeah. library and and the book fell on their head. Mm. Who was it? I forgot who it was, <laughs> but that was a cool story. And then he's like, "Oh, it's Mark, I think." Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. And on yeah. that note, let's uh, look forward to the next episode. The next episode has surprisingly is pretty much about Swami Pranavananda and Lahiri Mahasaya and uh, 
talks about their beautiful the development of that beautiful guru disciple relationship between those two and so i i'm so it's so cool that we can actually focus on all these little gems of lili Mahashai um things that i didn't i just took for granted when i first mm. you know read it the first few times because here we've got to talk about this you know lady Mahashai again and we've done how many episodes have we talked about lady Mahashai? but then if you talk to me ask me at the start of this you know uh project that we've done like when when do you start talking about lady Mahashai? i would have said you know chapter 30 or whatever not like now right we've, we've had so much good lady Mahashai content i'm really looking forward to that which uh chris should be leading and on that note shall we leave it there my good friends Brothers and sisters, thank you for joining us. We shall see you next time. Jai Guru. Jai Guru. Jai Guru.